I've learned a lot about being brave from being with Nick. So when Nick and I met and became best friends, he was not Nick. He, she was Nikki. So my husband is transgender, was a, living as a woman when we met, and through the time that we have been together, um, has been brave enough to first realize, you know, and tell the truth to himself and to me that he really, he he needs to live his life as a man. It's the only way that he feels like he can he can live in integrity. And it's taken immense courage for him to bring that realization out into the world. Um, and so he's transitioned. He is he is Nick. Um, he's my husband. And watching him go through that has been amazing. It's been incredible. That was Anna Kunicki, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 90. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing and one thing only, telling the truth about our lives. No one's trying to sell you anything. I promise that no one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life by offering a 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. I'm so over that, and I bet you are too. Life is complicated and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between that makes up life. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that you can often expect to hear adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you also won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. The show is 100% listener-funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Awesome, right? Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you, who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you, thank you so much. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a truly diverse group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. When you support this show, you are saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth-tellers for truth-tellers, and if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. As a big thank you, you'll get access to over 30 hours of bonus content with new fun stuff added every month, as well as our community discussion page, our virtual book club, my weekly behind-the-scenes email series where I talk about my real life in real time, and more. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support means everything to me. It truly does. And it's what will allow me to continue making new episodes for you as we join together to build a kinder, more open, and more truth-filled world. And now let's dive right into today's episode. 
Today, you'll get to meet Anna Kenneke. Anna helps smart, deep, soulful women get fierce enough to live in the real world and transform it with their courage, spirit, and leadership. She's the author of Practical Magic for Secret Mystics and The Bliss Conspiracy, and she just might be the only life coach in the world who doesn't believe in the law of attraction. More than 3,000 women have used her Queen Sweep program to streamline their lives, and her coaching helps big-hearted kindred spirits become what she calls EFBAs, epic fucking badasses. Anna has five kids, and she's the founder of the Birth Story Project, and her secret agenda, that's not really a secret at all, is a global takeover by the wise women. In this episode, Anna tells the story of how she became a life coach, despite the fact that she never, ever wanted to become a life coach and was initially skeptical about the whole industry. She talks about the early months of her business, how she worked other jobs on the side, and about the evolution of setting her prices and feeling confident in the value of her work. Anna also talks about her personal life, sharing stories from her blended family and what it felt like to go from having one child to suddenly having five children, basically overnight. She tells us about her marriage, her family's experience with therapy, and more, and it's all so beautifully honest. I hope that you love getting to know Anna as much as I did. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at nicoleantoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Anna, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I am excited for all of the good juicy things that we are going to discuss. too. Tell me something that you are totally obsessed with right now. Oh man, wow. Something I am totally obsessed with right now. (laughs) I am obsessed with this new deck of tarot cards that I just got. Um, They're made by this woman called Kim Kranz. And she runs a a business called The Wild Unknown. She's Portland-based. And they're so gorgeous. And I had her original deck, which is like a standard traditional tarot deck and she just came out with this deck that's like spirit animals (gasps) I know it sounds kind of flaky and whatever but oh my god they're so beautiful I'm obsessed so uh, tarot I I had um do you know Teresa Reed the tarot lady no she's fabulous she was on the show a bunch of seasons ago um so my my knowledge of tarot is like surface level I guess I would say um well I know absolutely nothing about it I'm like probably not even licensed to touch tarot cards I just love (laughs) that's fun right and especially if they're super beautiful yeah yeah they're so gorgeous and it's like a really gentle deck like some decks are kind of mean this one's this one's kind how so uh, I don't even know. I know. I'm like, wow, that's, I'm going really right into the deep end of like energetic mysticism here. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, some decks will like answer your questions in a way that's really sharp and spiky. And there's something about these, maybe it's because it's animals. And, and I at least feel like even the fiercest animals have some kind of benevolent, like loving energy to them. They just feel they feel kind and loving, even when they're like, yeah, basically you're being an asshole right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, which sometimes is the truth. I'm there for yeah. you. I get it. Like four times in a row, I pulled, in, you know, you lay cards out in a certain order and like one of them is going to be you. For like four times in a row, I got my, I, I kept coming up as the octopus, which basically is like, you have no boundaries. You're flopping all over the place. Get your shit together. <laughs> 
That's so funny. So tell me of all of the things that you have done so far in 2017, what was one of the most fun? Ooh, the most fun in 2017. Let's see. You know, this is going to sound so boring because I'm kind of boring and lame, but the truth is we took our kids down to this little tiny river that's in this little town where we live and we just chilled out and it was so much fun. We have a, we have five kids, um, ages 10 to two and like you know, it was so funny because it's, we live in this very suburban town and, and there's not a lot of nature. And so there's just, this is like this little tiny river and you can hear cars and you can see buildings from there, but they seriously, I think they thought that they were in like the deep wilderness and they were like finding sticks and throwing rocks. And we were like, Oh wow. You know, we're, we're working too hard at this like parenting thing. We just need to bring them to the river and like, let them go. It was a really good day. That's so funny. My husband grew up like basically in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota, like in the middle of the woods. And I grew up in Manhattan. Like we had very different childhoods. And Mm -hmm. so all of his stories are basically exactly, you know, like sticks and dirt and bit like things where I'm like, I think I like didn't get dirty until I was an adult, (laughs) like in the actual nature in the, in the woods. And yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like when you, you get a kid a present and then they want to play with the box, right? Or totally. Why do we even buy kids presents? I don't know. It's dumb. We should just buy them boxes of Kleenex until they're like seven. Just be like, here's some sticks. Yeah, totally. So funny. Well, I grew up in Tokyo, so I also didn't have a ton of like nature experiences. And I'm not really a nature person, which was hard when I lived in Portland because it's basically the religion. But it is kind of fun to watch my kids like go crazy over rocks. <laughs> so how long did you live there? In Portland? No, no, no. Before Portland. In In Tokyo? Tokyo? Yeah. So I moved to Tokyo when I was five years old. I lived there basically off and on, but mostly there until I finished high school. Um, And then I went off to college on the East Coast and had a nervous breakdown and moved to Chicago. It's a big, long story. But I went back to Tokyo in my 20s and lived there for another 10 years. And I only moved to Portland after the 2011 earthquake. Wow. So you spent a good portion of your life there. I did. Yeah. yeah. How, yeah. how do you feel like that shaped you? Or what do you feel like, how do you feel like you are different from having lived so long in somewhere that's, I guess, so different? Um, I mean, lots of things. Japan is, is such a different culture than the United States. You know, it's not having moved from the States to Canada recently, I'm, I'm shocked by like, wow, there's a lot more cultural differences than I would have expected from two places that look fairly similar and and speak the same language. There's still a lot of differences. Japan is like an entirely different universe. It's, it's so different. Um, and so I'm sure that that, you know, has shaped me in a lot of ways, but I would say that maybe the biggest thing is that in the, in the States, I, I am white, I am cis, I am femme. Um, I sort of look like, you know, a lot of the people that you see on TV. But most of my life, that was not the case. You know, I was this blonde girl with really pale skin and blue eyes. And I had like a huge, frizzy, like white blonde mass of hair that was just like crackling with, with energy. And so I stood out like such a sore thumb in Japan where of course everybody has black hair and and dark eyes. Um, and so I spent most of my life being other, 
You know, I, I, I didn't blend in. I couldn't just go around being anonymous. Literally everywhere I went, people would look at me because I looked very strange to them. And this is especially true 30 years ago. Um, and we lived in the outskirts, so we weren't, there weren't a ton of foreigners there. It's, it's different than if you lived in downtown Tokyo now. So I got very used to being, being the, the other, you know, which is not something that you would guess when you look at me that would have been part of my experience. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's also such a good reminder that everyone's the other in some situation, right? It's true. Yeah, it's true. So what's something, I mean, the, the sort of through line of what we do here on the show is obviously having honest conversations. What's something that you wish more people were open and honest about? Mm, God, I can think of like 40,000 things. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I work in the coaching industry. So I'm a life coach. I work with women who are very successful in, in some areas of their life and really feel like they're just fucking it up completely in another area. <laughs> that sort of describes all my clients. Um, and I love being a coach. It feels like really sacred work to me. I, I, I love it. I have tell me your secrets tattooed on my forehead. I finally figured out how to turn that into a career and it, it's fulfilling and wonderful and I love it. But I got to tell you, there is so much bullshit in the world of online coaching around what it takes to start a coaching business, to make it profitable, to have a business that you actually live off of, as opposed to like a hobby business. Um, I, I, I'm a, I've just sort of had it up to here with the like 12 step blueprint and six months to six figures. And I just want to be like, Oh my God, you guys, that is not how it works. At least not in my experience. Yeah. I mean, and I agree with you a hundred percent. It's, I, there's a million things that I wish, of course, that people were more open and honest about, but especially lately it comes back to money, like things that have to do with money. And obviously like there's a huge intersection with, you know, what you were just talking about. So that if your experience wasn't the like 12 steps to six figures, will you share a little bit more about what that was like for you to build your business? Yeah, it was more like 12 million tiny little grueling steps that led to lots of failure and crying and being so broke and thinking this is a terrible idea. I, my daughter's going to starve. I must just go get a job. <laughs> but I, there was this like stubbornness in me. I just felt like, no, I'm supposed to do this. This is, this is something that I'm meant to do. And, and there was a kind of, um, like, like a kind of alchemy that happened between me and my clients when I finally, you know, got some. Um, and I had like two at the beginning for seemed like ages. There was a kind of alchemy that happened that, that let me know, like, no, there really is something here. There, there is something I can, I can help people. They're, they're stronger and braver and more clear after we talk. And that gave me the hope and the, I don't know, the, nerve, I guess, to just keep going, even though there were many, many times when any sane person would have looked at my financial picture and been like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. You can't keep this. You can't do this. You have a child support to support. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> what were you doing before coaching? Um, I lived in Tokyo and I, I had a sort of a two prong career. I did voiceovers so I recorded commercials and video games and really everything you can think of anywhere that you would hear a voice. That was, I did that. Um, and then because I was also bilingual and bicultural, having spent so much of my life in Japan, um, I kind of moonlighted as a consultant. So if a, 
a U.S. company was coming in to do business in Japan, I was part of a team that would be basically go-betweens, kind of cultural liaisons, and also help them figure out how to make their marketing work in a very different market. Those are two completely different things that are also so different from coaching. See, this is why I love talking about this because I I mean, I have such kind of like a crazy, you know, wandering, winding path of career stuff too. And I think the more people that are, that start to talk about this, it's very rare that it's kind of a linear, you know, I was born and I knew I wanted to do this exact thing. And that's the only thing that I ever did forever. And I'm amazing at it. And I make so much money. (laughs) It's like very infrequently. Is that the story? And so, okay. So what, what, tell me about the day that kind of you either decided to be a coach or like, how did that even come into your awareness? Well, I never wanted to be a coach. I thought life coaching was completely cheesy and ridiculous and embarrassing. And like, I wouldn't have been caught dead near something called life coaching. Except, (laughs) (laughs) um, Except that I really, it's like I truly came into this world with like, tell me your secrets tattooed on my forehead in invisible ink. And people have just always told me their stories. So like if I'm at like a glamorous, fabulous cocktail party, everyone else is having a great time and drinking champagne and martinis. And I am like in the corner and someone is crying and they're telling me about their like childhood trauma or how their husband just left them or their boss is an asshole or whatever. That's just, that's just me. And I finally was like, you know what? I have to learn how to manage this better. I can't like, it it, it was like, I just, the only way I knew how to help these people. And I definitely felt like, well, if someone is pouring their heart out to me, I want to listen. I want to like, I don't want to be an asshole, but I didn't know how to help. The only way I knew how to help was like, they were feeling terrible. So then I would go and feel terrible with them and I would sit with them while they felt terrible and then they would cry and maybe I would cry too, or I would just make comforting noises. And then after a while they would feel better and they would like walk off and they'd be like, Oh my God, thank you. I feel so much better. And I would feel like shit. Mm. I would feel terrible. I felt sick and I couldn't shake it. And I was like, I have to learn how to manage this better. I either have to learn how to fend off these conversations or I have to, learn how to like have these conversations, but manage it better so that I am not just like taking on all of their crud and then carrying it around for a week. So I had read this book by a wonderful writer named Martha Beck. She was like a Harvard trained sociologist, but I didn't really care about that. What I cared about was that she had written this incredible memoir called Expecting Adam. It's such a marvelous book. It's still one of my absolute favorite books. If you guys are readers out there, you have to go get your hands on a copy. Um, I had read this book called Expecting Adam and I, she just was someone who like, I probably read this book like a dozen times, which I know sounds kind of creepy, but it just, it was like it, it fed me in some way. It, it gave me nourishment. And I decided one day, like literally out of the blue, I was like, I'm just going to Google Martha Beck. I wonder if she's written any more books. Cause I lived in Tokyo at this point. And so like, we didn't get the Oprah magazine and I didn't watch American TV and I didn't know that she had this whole other world. Anyway, I Google Martha Beck to see if she'd written another wonderful memoir I could read. And I discovered, much to my surprise, that she had also written a bunch of self-help stuff that I didn't really know about. And I was like, definitely not into the self-help stuff, but she's the best writer I've ever known. I want to know what she knows. And she had this life coaching training, and she sort of talked about exactly what I was experiencing, that some of us, like, you want to help, but you don't know how, and it ends up hurting, and you feel like you're supposed to do something, but it never ends well. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's me. (laughs) I signed up for this life coach training, which is a really long, long answer to your question. But I I had like 
no intention of becoming an actual life coach. I was like, I'm just going to secretly add this set of tools to my tool belt. And then I won't feel like I want to throw up when I go into my next consulting meeting. This is going to be great. (laughs) Well, lo and behold, like, you know, eight years later, here I am a full-time coach. (laughs) So Clearly that didn't work out the way I thought it was going to. (laughs) Which honestly is super refreshing, right? Like it's so cute when we think we can control all the things or like we know exactly what is or is not going to happen. It's just not, we just can't. It's just not. Totally. Totally. So, So what was the training like? What did you learn? Um, gosh, it was a while ago. It was, um, back in 2009, I learned, I I learned that thing that I went in to learn, which was how to hold space for someone and let them have a really intense emotional experience without entering into that experience with them, like without going there with them. And also without like taking it into myself. Um, I also learned a bunch of really practical things about, you know, how to, how to set up a practice and how to begin marketing it and, and figuring out how to solve a specific problem for, for people. But I would say that the heart of what I learned is how to like hold a safe space for someone and like let them open up and peel back all those layers and shine a light on what's happening without like my, me getting destroyed in the process. And, and, and you know, what I found out much to my surprise was that I was actually much more helpful to people when I could stay calm and clear and, and like, I had a lot more compassion to give when I was witnessing their experience as opposed to like, Oh my God, I'll go into it with you. And then we'll both be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it worked much better. Yeah. So I hear from a lot of folks who are either, I don't know, relatively new in a business they're setting up or just doing, you know, something for the first time. And the theme of, you know, who am I to do this, right? Imposter syndrome, I think is very, mm-hmm. very, I think, I mean, I think it's a universal experience. <laughs> like I've never known anyone that hasn't yeah. had that at some point. So right? I'm curious, especially since you didn't, you know, it sounds like you had some aversion to the idea of life coaching. And so like those early sort of months for you, once you were, you know, working with clients or doing that, how did that, if it did show up for you, this idea of sort of imposter syndrome? Oh my gosh. You should have seen my first like seven websites, the first like seven iterations of my website, because I tried to make a website for myself offering life coaching that did not use the words life coach (laughs) (laughs) because I was so conflicted about the whole concept. (laughs) It didn't work very well. I'm just going to tell you right up front. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I totally had imposter syndrome. Um, You know, in some ways, I think actually it was a boon for me that I I started this, like I never intended to become a life coach, right? And I really loved the work I was doing in Tokyo. Um, I really liked being a consultant and getting to come in and just like look at a problem and be like, all right, here five ways we could solve it and then get to waltz out again and not actually have to do any implementation. That was super fun. Um, and I really loved doing the voiceovers before doing that. I had been, um, a stage actress, which was fantastic in its own way, but then I had a kid and this was, this worked much better. Um, but basically I had sort of been working on my own. Like I'd been supporting myself without like a traditional paycheck for, I mean, I don't know, probably a decade at that point. So part of it was that I had some experience under my belt and I knew that as much as I felt like, you know, an imposter as a coach, 
um, or as someone who could help someone in that way, I did know that I knew how to hustle and I knew how to like, I knew that when my back was up the wall, up against the wall, that I would make something happen because I had like 10 years of, of proof that I hadn't actually starved even as a starving actor. I had somehow (laughs) made it work. So that helped a lot, right? Like having that sort of gut trust in myself that like, I don't know what I'll do. I'll clean apartments if I have to. I worked as a cleaner in my twenties for a good chunk. Um, and I had this like, well, whatever I need to do, I'll just do it. And I think that that helped a lot. And I think it also helped that when I first started my coaching business, it was just this little hobby business. It wasn't ever supposed to be a thing that supported me because I had this other work. I had this consulting gig, I had my voiceover work, and I had no intention of, of walking away from those things. So there wasn't a lot of pressure on the side, the like side hustle that I was starting which in retrospect, I think was probably really helpful. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, so a couple of sort of things I want to underline from what you just said, this idea, I think that there's a a fantasy again, you know, when you were talking about the things that you don't like about your industry that, you know, follow these 12 step blueprint, whatever, Mm -hmm. and you'll have a successful business. Like, I think that there is a fantasy of quit your job and start the thing and it's going to support you immediately. And, you know, there's something right. There's like what you're describing, you know, doing something when there isn't as much pressure, specifically financial pressure on it, like things take time to grow. Right. And that might be a less sexy story, but I like, I resonate with that a lot for sure. Like being like giving something sort of, I don't know, like handling it with the like protective gloves of what does this thing need in order to be nurtured? And, you know, when it's time for me to quit other things, I will. But I think Mm -hmm. that there's just, there's something like really beautiful and real about, well, I did this on the side, right? Like this wasn't like I woke up one day and was like, flip tables, fuck everything. I'm going to, you know, (laughs) it's. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have that moment where they do have to kind of make that like, you know, make or break moment of like, all right, am I, am I going to go all in? But I do think you're right that I think a lot of people are kind of pushed into doing that like too early, you know, before Mm -hmm. they're really ready for it, before they have their sea legs. Yeah. Something else that you said that I think is really valuable, um, this, you know, when you were saying, okay, I haven't done coaching before, but I do know how to hustle. And I, Hey, look behind me, I have 10 years of experience of working for myself in a non-traditional capacity. Something that I think that it's really easy to overlook is the fact that even though something might be new or like the job might be new, that skills are transferable. Even if you're entering totally. a different, right? Like you're entering a different industry yeah. or like that happened for me. I, you know, I've done a large amount of like seemingly very different things, which of course are different. But once I had to sit down and look at, okay, what are the qualities that made me good at, you know, directing a children's summer day camp? What are the qualities, you know, of being an event leader mm-hmm. of doing this? And, and like, they seem super different. But, oh, wait, this thing that I learned over here actually comes with me, even though I've quit that job or do that. It's like sometimes I think can be really empowering to even if something is new and scary and you're starting from scratch to kind of arm yourself with the knowledge that, wait, <laughs> that, like this thing might be new, but I'm not brand new. Totally, totally. And if you can own that part of your own story, if you can pull that thread out on your own, you're so ahead of the game when it comes to really any job interview, whether your experience looks like it lines up with that or not. If you can find that thread in your own story, you become insanely like what marketable, (laughs) you know, as a candidate. Yeah. So with the first couple clients that you worked with, um, I'm trying to think what I, what I want to ask. I'm always interested in people's like 
kind of baby, like sprouting origin story, right? The like, this was my yeah. first client or what did you learn from kind of your first interactions with clients? Well, the first, I would say like half a dozen clients were total disasters. I was pretty sure that maybe I had gotten it all wrong and I definitely wasn't supposed to coach people. And it was just because I was green and I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how to set boundaries and I didn't know how to set things up in a way that, you know, worked for them, but also worked for me. Um, And I was like, I think my first sessions, I think I charged $25 a session right? Which is, which is a good thing to do when you're starting out. But it also meant that like the people I was working with, A, didn't have a lot of confidence in me because why should they? I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself. And frankly, they weren't very invested because they knew they were only getting a $25 coaching session. So it didn't go well at first. I actually was like, maybe I'm totally not cut out for this. And then somebody told me you should start charging market rates. And I was like, that's crazy. Look at, look at, clearly I'm terrible at this. Everybody sucks. Half my clients have just stopped showing up to their sessions. <laughs> you want me to raise my rates? That's insane. But they pointed out that in any business, no one wants to work with the person who's like, like, you know, half as much as anyone else. They were like, what if you lowered your voiceover rates to like a quarter of the market rate? And I was like, oh yeah, no, that would be terrible. I would kill my business immediately. And they were like, see, and so I, it sounds crazy, but the very best thing I did was to, was to like start charging market rates, which I think were like hundred, I think it was probably around a hundred dollars a session, which I did quaking in my boots and sure that it was going to be a disaster, but things got a lot better. Yeah. I'm always really interested, particularly with something like coaching, right. Or even in life coaching specifically, I think, you know, business coaching may be slightly different, but that it's sort of it's so can be so powerful if you're working with the right person and it's the right fit and you're ready for it and invested but it's also in some ways intangible like some of the benefits totally. right that it's not like totally I'm going to charge you x amount of money and paint your house and then when I leave like you can see that your house a different color yes. right yeah and so and I can't promise that like I can't help people make more money I can't promise them a promotion like I can't really promise them anything yeah, so I'm I'm always really curious on how sort of the assessment of value works on both sides of that coin. Because I know for me, mm-hmm. like having been a client, right, having worked with coaches, that what you're saying is is completely true, that there is, if it's the very, very cheapest rate, then I mean, I don't take it seriously. Like it has, in order for me to show up fully, it has to feel, I mean, of course, I'm not going to like max out my credit card on it, but it has to feel like slightly uncomfortable, the amount of money that I'm paying, because then it kind Mm -hmm. of like snaps me into focus, like as a client, like, okay, like Mm -hmm. you put some money down for this. It's time to be serious. Right. And so it sounds like the same was true for you on the flip side, but I'm just curious, like the evolution of your, like, how do you decide on how you set your prices? Well, it's really different now than it was back when I was starting out, you know, like, like now I have a $20,000 year long one on, you know, one-on-one coaching program. Those women get astounding results, amazing results, but obviously that's not for everyone. And I certainly wouldn't have done that in year, you know, two or three or I don't know, maybe even five of coaching. Mm -hmm. Like it, it took some time for me to get there. Um, gosh, how do you set pricing it's so personal and it so much depends on what's happening, right? And where you live. Like when I lived in Tokyo versus living in Portland versus living up here. And because my my business is online, in some ways it doesn't matter. But I think part of it is just paying attention and being like, well, what would I pay? What wouldn't me and my friends pay for this? Mm-hmm. 
But I think you're right. When we don't value something, we don't, we don't put ourselves into it. And especially for something as intangible as coaching, I'm not like, I think I'm a pretty good coach, but I'm not a magician. I can't make things happen for people. They have to go out and make them happen for themselves. Yeah. So there's, it's, it's also like that element of working against the idea of like the sort of instant gratification results, right? Like, I mean, obviously I know that I'm assuming you have kind of an application process and are very choosy with those couple of people that you're working with, right? That, Mm -hmm. you know, that's uh, when you're looking for someone who understands what you just said, that you're a great coach, but not a magician, right? Like that's like Mm -hmm. a key factor, I would assume. Mm -hmm. And weirdly enough, actually, as you start to get into that higher realm of pricing, it's actually easier to sell because the people who are thinking about investing at that level clearly are extremely successful in some arena of what they're doing. Um, and they often will have a lot of respect for, you know, hiring people who are good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, so it like, makes complete sense. Well, I mean, there's, that's, uh, I mean, obviously I'm fascinated about money and just all things related to money, hence how we got into this corner of the conversation. But yeah, yeah that super I, juicy. I think that, Yeah, what you're saying makes complete sense. I mean, price, like a lot of other factors, or maybe is the biggest filter, right? That it's like there are people that uh, like immediately would be like, that's not a good fit for me, right? Like she's not the right coach for me because I can, mm-hmm. that's not the budget that works for me, right? But then mm-hmm. the people, like you said, that are that are looking at that level, right? It's almost like self-selecting. Yeah. 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 And, and when you're, you know, obviously that's a package that is for like people who are executives, they are, you know, they're sitting in the C-suite or they're the like VP of whatever for some huge company. And for them at that point, $20,000 is a lot of money. But when you think about how much they stand to gain or lose every time, for example, they sit down and negotiate, you know, their next position or they negotiate a raise, like it's, there's so much leverage in their careers and they have to make such big decisions all the time with such high stakes that affect so many people's lives that compared to that, it's not a lot of money to invest in them being really, really clear and knowing that they're at the top of their game. Yeah. A hundred percent. So this is, this might be kind of a strange question, but let's say someone is listening and hasn't worked, you know, with a life coach or someone in a coaching capacity, but has always been interested in it. Do you have any sort of tips that you've gained through your years in the industry of sort of how to wade through the bullshit and like actually find someone who's going to be the right fit for you? Like if you were looking to work with someone, like what would you look for as a client or what would you, I think you get what I'm asking. Yeah, totally. Because there is a lot of bullshit, but even among really great, great coaches, and there are, you know, there are so many great coaches. It's so much about finding the right fit, right? Like it's like buying a pair of shoes. It's not enough to be like, well, I'm going to buy a $400 pair of shoes. Like you could still hate the shoes. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and, absolutely. You know, they're not bad shoes. They're just not the right ones for you. Um, I would say that the best thing to do is to get on someone's email newsletter. Pretty much any coach is going to have, you know, a blog that they send out every week or a, a weekly update or something like that. I would get on that and I would stay on that. I would like read what they send out um, for a month or two and watch how they market their, you know, their courses or their offerings or whatever, and, and see how it feels in your gut. Be like, is this someone who I would want to emulate? You know, do, is this, do I like what they're doing? Does it feel good? Is it an integrity? Does it seem fierce and powerful or sexy or professional or whatever it is you're going for? Like you want, you want someone who's like the way that they run their work 
is something that you can respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also that, you know, whatever the content is that they're talking about, like, does it really resonate with you? Absolutely. And try out some of those things. Coaches are always putting like, here's three things to try. And most people never, ever, ever do them. If you try some of them and none of them work for you, it doesn't matter how smart and wonderful and kind a human they are. They're not the right coach for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you should get some instant gratification by like, you should be able to put some of those things into practice and see things shift right away or or like it should work right away. Yeah. Well, I mean, then I also think that that's a powerful suggestion for another reason, because are you actually willing to do the work, right? Like that it's, it sounds nice sometimes, like I'm just going to hire someone. And like you said, that's going to fix everything or magician style or whatever. Right. But Mm -hmm. like maybe before making an investment, like they try some of the things, the great content that they're offering for free. Like, are you willing to even do that? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So I've heard you say that you think the law of attraction is totally bogus, which is something that you don't hear often from coaches. And I would love for you to tell me about that. Yeah, I'm totally committing like personal development world heresy here. But <laughs> I'm into okay. it. Listen, go for <laughs> I'm it. kind of a I'm kind of a heretic, so it's it's fine. Um, yeah, I oh, there's so much bullshit out there about the law of attraction. In fact, literally last night. I was on Instagram, I was lying in bed next to my husband, because yes, we, we look at our phones in bed, we're, we're real people, not perfect people, but anyway, <laughs> we, were, we were looking at Instagram, and I was like, babe, look at this, can you believe this? I was so angry, because it was an ad, and literally, it was like, it started out saying things that I, I actually agree with, which is things like, you can only choose your own response to things, you're not in charge of the world, but you are you do have powerful choices. And I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And then it started to talk about vibration. And then literally, this was an, a video ad. It said, literally, it said, suddenly, the perfect house for you simply appears. Suddenly, all of your money worries take care of themselves. And I was like, literally, there was steam coming out of my ears. I was like, that is such bullshit. And I think it's harmful to people to, to, like, to say things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. So if you don't believe in the law of attraction, what do you believe? What's sort of your philosophy, so to speak? I think that our energy is powerful. I think that things that happen in our minds um, and in our hearts, I think that they have immense like juice and power in the capacity to shift things out in the world. So I absolutely think that like, clearing up your thoughts and making sure you don't have a bunch of, you know, terribly toxic thinking running through your, your mind. It's totally important. I fully believe that we are like super magical, energetic beings. Um, I'm actually teaching a a class right now called practical magic for secret mystics. That's all about that energetic stuff. That's kind of hard to quantify. So it's not that I don't believe in energy or that I don't believe in spirit, the power of our, of our minds and hearts. But I think that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is what's happening with your body. What are you doing? What kind of actions are taking? How do you move through the world? How do you walk? How do you speak? Where do you spend your money? What does your house look like? Like all of these decisions that we make in terms of how we shape our physical reality, I think that the law of attraction people are just conveniently forgetting all of that stuff. And they're promoting this idea that like, you can just sit at home and meditate and then suddenly checks will just start showing up in the mail. And I think, no, you should absolutely meditate, get clear, like get yourself into a space of love and and try to, you know, 
intend to be of service, light a candle, pull your tarot cards, whatever floats your boat. And you're going to have to write words on your website that speak to your people. And you're going to have to probably write blog posts every week. And you're going to have to actually pick up the phone and call people and be like, hey, here's what I can do. Do you want to hire me to speak? And you're going to have to, you know, I don't know, like you're going to have to take lots and lots of action out in the physical world with your actual like body. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I I love this so much because I think that it's very easy to get hung up like to, on either end of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Like really frantic, you know, doing of the things, multitasking, going in circles, chasing your tail, you know, with the toxic thoughts and from like a, a not the right place, right? And then it's very yeah. it's really easy to do the other end because I mean I think this this idea of the law of attraction for me what's appealing about it in the ways that you just described is that it feels sort of safe in that well I don't actually have to do the scary things right like <laughs> that, right because if I'm just attractive enough stuff will just magically float toward me yeah that it's you know anytime I look at something that's really popular that there's like what's the benefit right like what what do I get if I like really subscribe to this you know way of thinking and it sort of is that like it's really scary to pick up the phone and here's what I do and will you hire me like that's terrifying mm-hmm. right oh my god <laughs> fucking terrifying terrifying so totally terrifying yeah I love like it's it feels to me really practical you know what you shared that it's like here's the woo-woo side of things which is also very real right mm-hmm. but it's not enough yeah it's true because if you take a lot of frantic action from a place of real like desperation and I think going back to what you were saying earlier this is why it's so good to not put too much pressure on your business when it's starting out because if you're coming at it with this energy of like oh my god you really have to hire me because I don't know how I'm gonna pay my rent please hire me <laughs> like that no one that's not attractive to anybody in any sense and people can feel that desperation that's the same in a in a job negotiation or a salary negotiation mm-hmm. right the more you can be calm and interested and curious and in that like kind of detached problem solving mode, the more interest, the more attractive you're going to be as a candidate, as opposed to the person who's like, yeah, please hire me. I'll do anything. Oh, I'll work for free. Oh, you got to hire me. I'm so qualified. Right. Like yeah. <laughs> that energy is, is very real. Yeah. But I think the other thing about the law of attraction, and I think that what gets really triggered in me is I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but the reason I grew up in Tokyo is because my parents are Christian missionaries. So I grew up very much steeped in the church. Um, I lived in a world that was completely saturated by religion. And I honestly think that the law of attraction is just a, a slightly new age version of that same old chestnut that religious people have been using forever to blame the victim of life's hard knocks. Mm. Well, if you just had more faith, God wouldn't have made your baby get sick. If you just prayed harder, you would have gotten that, you know, that job. Um, well, maybe you didn't really pray. Like it's this weird blame the victim thing that you'll notice that the only people who really talk about the law of attraction are mostly people who are insanely privileged in their life, who like got like a really crazy lucky deal by, by benefit of their genetics or birth. And it's just too easy to be like, oh, well, if something bad happened to you, it must have been your fault. It must have been your energy. And I think that it's a really, it's kind of a cruel way of looking at the world. Does that make any sense? That's one of the smartest things I've ever heard. Like, I just, I want to like have a moment of pause to be like, wait, I need to absorb everything that you just said. (laughs) 
That's so true. I've never thought specifically of the law of attraction like that, but it's, I mean, it's so um, similar to sort of the way that we like health shame people and just like how everything's just like matter of morality, right? Like, well, if you just like would have eaten more kale, like you wouldn't be sick or you wouldn't We're like, "Mm, okay, well, that's not how things work always. Right. So it's like, yeah, yeah, the victim shame. That's so interesting. Okay. So then how do you sort of personally grapple with or navigate the like juxtaposition of everything that you just said is true, like not blaming the victim, like circumstances and privilege and luck and coincidence, like all of that is real. And also like free will and choice and personal and like taking responsibility for yourself. <laughs> Fuck if I know. Right. Like, Cause that's the thing, right. That it's like, I want to believe that I like can take responsibility and do, it's like it, but also can't control all the things, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have no, no clue. I I have no idea. And I think anyone who's like, oh, I have the answer. I think you should run far away from them because they want to sell you something. (laughs) Yeah. No. Okay. Well, that's an incredibly honest answer. I mean, this is like the great existential question, right? Like, you know, philosophers for thousands of years have been grappling with this. This is like Homer and Plato. And I don't think they knew either. I think we're all just kind of trying to figure it out. Yeah. I, no, my God, your honesty is beautiful. I love it. I, I think... (laughs) Yeah, because we we want to have an answer because the question itself is very uncomfortable. Totally. We want anything that will make us feel safe. Mm, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Because it's terrifying to be like, here we are standing naked. The winds of fate blow at us. Hard, you know, knock life, knocks at us. And we have no idea what we're doing or what it means. That's completely terrifying. Who wants to admit to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. But it's also kind of fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's both. Right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So this. wild and free and like opens up the possibilities that if we have no clue what's going on, all we can do is do our best and do what seems interesting. Right. Yeah. That you go from, I'm never going to be a life coach to (laughs) how many years later being a life coach, like the winds (laughs) of whatever. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned before this idea that, um, or not even idea, I would agree to say like this truth that a lot of the folks who were talking about the law of attraction in this way, you know, have an incredible amount of privilege. Right. And I read in an, I'm sure there are exceptions. Sorry. I'm like, I just made a huge sweeping generalization, but but yeah. I think I think on the whole, I would agree with that, right? That like more often than not, that that is has been true, right? From what I have seen, that or so whether it's true or not, like I guess okay, so period space or like new paragraph. Um, <laughs> I read an article of yours where you talked about this idea that privilege comes with incredible responsibility, and mm. can you share some more just on your thoughts around that? My gosh, did I write an article on that? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't on your website. It was it was somewhere else. I don't remember exactly what it was that you were talking about, but it was that that line stuck with me. I remember that. Yeah, I totally believe that. I absolutely believe that. And it's it's one of the things that my clients and I talk a lot about because, you know, even if you're not at the twenty thousand level, like my my coaching isn't cheap. And so most of the women that I'm working with really grapple with that, like on the one hand, oh my God, life feels so hard. I'm, I'm busting my ass every day at work and I have these kids and okay, like, right. You know, if I, if they're working with me, something in their life is going to feel hard. But at the same time, they're like, and yet I look around and I realize that like, I am so incredibly lucky and how do I have any right to, to say my life is hard. And you know what I mean? Most of the women I know are, or that I work with are somewhere in that, in that position where they feel really conflicted. But the truth is, most of us 
I'll just say in the United States, are we are incredibly lucky, even if we're like really struggling and we're broke. And, you know, there are places in the world where we would like people would give anything to have our set of problems. I, I, I think it's helpful to have a healthy, what, a healthy sense that even when things are hard, we're so fucking lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so glad that I am not a woman in certain parts of the world right now because just by dint of being born female, there's like huge swaths of life that wouldn't even be options for me. Yeah. Martha Beck one time said, <laughs> she's so blunt, I love her. She was like, you know what? You could have been born, uh, you could have been born in a rape camp in, I don't know, I can't remember, some country. She's like, you could have been born with mental defects in a rape camp with only three limbs. Like, don't you feel lucky? And I was like, oh my God, you're not supposed to say things like that. But it's so true, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which again, like the contradictions, right? Because like, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And then I think, so like when you have clients that are, okay, yes, this idea, what do I want to say? I feel like it's hard or I don't love the, anytime someone's giving me the, the kind of platitude, well, like it could be worse, which obviously is not what you're saying. Right. Because Mm, like, of course, like that's true for sure. And yes, privilege comes with responsibility. It's like one of the, okay, those things are true, but it doesn't mean that the pain that I'm feeling isn't real pain. Right. So I'm sure that's something you navigate with your clients too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It is a, um, it's a tricky line. It's funny. I never really thought of those two as being, being, like in opposition before, but, but you're right. No, absolutely. Everybody has their own experience and, you know, any life coach who works with wealthy people will tell you wealth is not a get out of jail free card. Lots of money will not solve what is happening inside your heart. And, you know, we don't know what's going on for people inside their marriages, with their kids, in their past, you know, with like, People are walking around with broken hearts at all ends of the financial spectrum. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's that thing where it's like, I feel like all of these things are paradoxes because what I just said is true. You can have a broken heart, however much money you have in the bank. And at the same time, if I'm going to have a broken heart, I'd rather have a lot more money in the bank than yeah. yes. have a broken heart and be broke, right? Like, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah, I don't think I actually answered your question about no, the I don't even know that there there is a question as much as I just think this these are interesting things to talk about. I think so often, you know, and then there's uh, other topics we can shift into, but in the the coaching space, right? That or I don't even want to say coaching space, in the like inspiration porn space, right? Like let's just call it that, right? The <laughs> yeah. like Pinteresty like inspiration porn mm-hmm. that like it's really easy to over like over over oversimplify any of these things that we're talking about right like well it could be worse and like think how lucky you are and like privilege comes with responsibility like each of these could be you know in a pretty font like on a background of a sky and like some you know someone's doing yoga right or whatever okay that's not what I mean at all I'm so glad you said that so what I'm talking about is and I'm thinking specifically of a of a particular group of women that I work with. Um, they are usually like total rising stars in their careers. They have made it to a certain kind of office that many people would want to have. And oh my God, it is so fucking hard. Mm-hmm. Like like they have come to this place, they've worked so hard to get there, and then they're like, they realize, oh my God, it's never gonna get easier. If anything, it just keeps getting harder because they keep handing me harder and harder problems to solve. 
And, you know, at this level, they deal with such bullshit. They deal with racism. They deal with misogyny. They deal with ingrained, entrenched, unconscious, you know, bullshit, right? And it's not overt. Sometimes, a lot of times, it's really subtle, which in some ways is easier, but in other ways makes them feel like they're crazy all the time. Mm-hmm. So they're both in a place of incredible privilege, but they're also dealing with really, really hard problems that they're trying to solve. And what the, what, like the, the biggest shift that I have seen so many of these women make that has made them feel so much better about everything is they shift from seeing themselves as this lone woman struggling in this broken system. They switch to seeing themselves as an advocate for all the other women who are struggling, who are going to be struggling in that system too. Yeah. And that switch, it's like, boom, it's like turning on a light. It's like, because it's so much easier to advocate for someone else, right? It taps Mm -hmm. into all the, it's like, it takes all that weird crappy stuff that we're taught as women about being the angel in the house and, you know, being caretakers. It's like, it takes that. It rips out all the like crappy stuff and it, it turns it into this enormous force for good for like, all right, I don't know how to solve this problem for me in this board meeting for myself, but you know what I can do? I can get it in there and advocate like a motherfucker for better maternity leave and, you know, fairer hiring practices. And I'm going to restructure our salary review process to make sure that it's not so fucking unfair, right? Like that's really powerful. Yeah, this idea of, you know, being an active part of something as opposed to, you know, feeling like I'm alone and crazy and don't know what to do with this. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, and, and yeah, no, I, I love that. And I see why that switch would absolutely be powerful. And what, what I was getting at with the whole sort of like inspiration porn thing, not that I thought that that's what you were saying at all. It's more that it's really easy, I think, for folks to like, we're surrounded with those messages, right? Like that type of stuff. Totally. And then and I confess, I make some of those tiles and I put them on Instagram. To, I mean, to, <laughs> and that's the thing. It's not, nothing's like all good or all bad, right? Like, I think my point is that, the same way that you were talking about the sort of victim blaming, I have had experiences of, you know, reading all of those posts or seeing all of those, you know, types of things on Pinterest or whatever and having the like, well, what's wrong with me that I can't just be okay because of course it could be worse. Like snap out of it. Do that. Like the, what I really appreciate about everything that you're sharing, even though neither of us have the answers or even think the answers exist, <laughs> right? That it's like, no, no, you're not alone if those things, if those platitudes don't work for you or you're not crazy because you can't get it together, right? That like this is like way yeah. more complex and nuanced and oftentimes I think that we, that doesn't get addressed as much, especially, you know, in this internet world, because it's a lot easier to, as a marketing platform to be like, well, here's the problem and I can fix it for you. 999 by this thing, right. (laughs) Or whatever. So anyway, I just like appreciate the sort of messiness of even what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it is messy, right? It's, and this is why I love books. Like I write blog posts and I love the internet, but this is why I love books is because my favorite writers dive right into that mess you know, Love Warrior by Glennon Melton Doyle is a huge bestseller recently. And oh my God, talk about diving fearlessly into the messy parts of things. You know, it's why we all love Cheryl Strayed so much because she showed us this incredibly messy, like portrait of herself. And it's so refreshing, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. 
So switching gears a little bit, I would love to talk about the recent project of yours. That's how I found your work. Um, so our mutual lovely friend, Sarah Von Bargen, who has been a yeah. guest on the show, um, was part of your audio series, How to Be on the Right Side of History, Even Though You're Ridiculously Busy, which is a great name, yes. by the way. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um and I, I mean, I've devoured those. I love them. And I would love to hear Aww. about sort of how that series came to be. <laughs> well, first, there were a lot of tears. There was a lot of really messy, snotty crying after the election. Um, I just was so, I felt so hopeless. I thought, I was like, oh my God, I have three daughters. How do I look them in the face and tell them that, People elected a man who thinks it's okay for him to grab their private parts. Like, I've spent all this time teaching them about consent and, you know, that they get to be human beings and they have human rights. And my country has just, in my opinion, totally decimated that and taken us, you know, back. Um, And I just, I was heartbroken. I wasn't surprised exactly, but I was devastated. And I felt, I felt so hopeless. And I, you know, there was this incredible surge of momentum with the Women's March and everybody was, you know, calling their representatives and making phone calls and making donations and sending money to the ACLU. And I felt like that is so great. But what's going to happen when all of that energy dies down? And I wanted to... I wanted to, I mean, if I'm going to be like lofty about it, I'll say I wanted to create a vision and like a, a a path for, for how we could carry this on and carry this momentum forward. But the truth is the non lofty version. And I was like, Oh my God, I feel almost hopeless right now, but I'm not willing to give up. So I need to talk to people who are smarter than me and more passionate than me and, and, you know, have a particular kind of experience and passion and I need to hear what they have to say and I'm going to share it with my my tribe because I know that many of them are feeling hopeless as well mm-hmm. yeah so from those conversations has there been anything you know from the people that you have talked with and interviewed that's stuck with you the most like any of the most powerful takeaways for you personally oh man there are so many I really feel like every single one of those interviews it was like I got a little bit of rocket fuel injected right into my veins um I would say that Danielle Moody Mills interview stands out. She is someone who is so fearless in speaking her truth. And she, she will just sort of come out and say the things that many of us are, are afraid to say. And she said, we were talking about, um, about women running. And I was like, you know, but most of us feel like I'm not qualified. I don't know what I'm doing. Who the hell am I? I don't know anything about politics. And she was like, listen, Do you see who just got elected? If you take nothing else from this election, take this as evidence that you are more fucking qualified than anybody else out there who was trying to do this. Mm, Yeah, I I loved her interview as well. That that part stuck with me too. Like, oh, right, that this person who has no qualifications. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, I loved that. I loved that a lot. Um, Anything else that, that comes to mind that really stuck out for you? Yeah, you know, one of the most recent interviews I did, I think it might even be the most recent one that's up, was with a woman named um, Andrea Isabel Lucas. And she... She's been on the podcast too. Yeah, she's great. Has she? Mm -hmm. I love her. Yeah, she's awesome. And so she shared her story about having come through a really, really difficult childhood, 
um, you know, living on the streets at one point, was a teenage mom, got out of a really abusive domestic relationship, you know, really has been through some stuff. And she said at one point, she said, you know, I didn't have any resources, but I had had a fire in me. I think she even said I had a fire in my belly. And she, she just sort of spoke to the fact that like, no matter what has happened to you, you are stronger than you think. And you can pull on an inner resource that no one else can see, but it's very real. And that fire in her belly has helped her create, you know, an incredible business, an incredible life has really catapulted her into a very different place. And so this is sort of like that flip side of the law of attraction is there are things you can do in your life, no matter what is happening, change it. You know, no matter what a bad situation you're in, there might be things that, that you can do to move yourself forward. And she said something else that was so great. She said, a lot of those next steps forward are not going to be glamorous. It might be going to something that is like, it doesn't even feel, it feels like a half step up, not even a, a full step up. Like maybe you go from, and I'm making up examples. Maybe you go from, I don't know, I can't even think, but it was something like, you know, maybe you, you get a job stripping and stripping is not your dream job, but it gets you money and it's going to get you and your kid out of there. Or, you know, maybe you agree to move with someone who you don't even want to stay with, or it's not even a good relationship, but you know, it's going to get you to a place where you can be safer. She just talked in this really raw way about the fact that sometimes the the next thing that's going to move you forward or help you change your life is not going to look pretty on Pinterest at all. It might even be something that other people would look down on. But if you just sort of keep following that inner fire and you just keep taking that next step that you can end up somewhere vastly different than anyone might have imagined for you. Yeah. And I found that oh, so inspiring. Yeah, I think I think that's beautiful. And I also think that's really just like capital T true, right? That it's we want the pretty next step or the perfect next step or the one that completely makes sense or the one that like we can completely stand behind. But often, you know, that what we think of or what we're waiting for, like that's actually like 13 steps away, right? And like in order to get to that, it's like you have to go do the things that either like maybe you don't want to do or there's like shame or guilt or, you know, you have to ask for help from someone you don't want to ask for help for or that like it's Mm -hmm. okay that it's okay that you have to do whatever it is you have to do to save yourself, whatever that looks like. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. I, uh, I loved her episode as well. Also someone that I met through Sarah Von Bergen. So here we go. Right. Our connection wheel. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's funny. So, I mean, obviously this series, right. That you have created are creating, um, you know, like you said, born out of, you know, the aftermath of the election, just on kind of a personal level. This is a completely a selfish question because I am struggling with this myself. Um, how are you sort of navigating the, you know, staying informed about things and not melting down about things and like taking action, but feeling like it's not enough action or, you know, basically like insert any number of things that I could say there. (laughs) Totally. Oh my gosh. I mean, not well. Yeah. Me either. It's a really honest answer. Like I mostly just swing between like a binge and purge cycle of like, all right, I need to stay informed. I haven't looked at anything in a week. I should find out what's going on. And then seven hours later, I'm like crumpled in a corner, you know, (laughs) and I'm like, okay, that's too much. So hopefully I can lessen those swings a little bit. I'll tell you one thing that I do, um, that I have stayed pretty consistent with is I don't watch TV news. 
I just don't do it. Um, I am very, very sensitive. I don't have a, a thick skin and I've learned to embrace that and see it as a strength rather than a weakness. But it does mean that I do need to be deliberate about how I consume my media. So I will always read something in a newspaper rather or like, you know, online. Um, but I try to stay away from the video because the combination of the images and the music and, you know, the fact that they're plucking out this, the most sensational bits that are designed to like trigger a really primal fight or flight response in us, I just can't take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I get burnt out really quickly if I, if I take in too much of that. So I do better when I just read and I stick to like one or two news sources and I just try to read like top couple headlines every day. And then every now and then I'll try to read something that's a little bit more in depth. Yeah. But, you know, I feel like there are people, and I'm trying to think who it was in the interview series that said this, but she was like, we all have different, we all have different gifts. Some people, the very best use of their time is for them to spend four hours a day reading all of that really in-depth analysis and, you know, reading conflicting versions of the same thing and then like synthesizing it and like regurgitating it for the rest of us. She's like, there are people out there that is like an amazing use of their time. It's so good for all of us. And she, she's like, but we don't all need to be doing that. And in fact, we shouldn't all be doing that. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really like insightful. And that's, that's not really my gift. That's not, you know, I feel like I can be most useful when I am helping other women get stronger and fiercer. And so I try to, I try to keep a balance between like, I want to stay informed. I want to be educated, but I can read a thousand articles and it's not actually going to change what I'm going to say to my women about <laughs> strengthening their, their boundaries and, you know, learning to say no and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Something that I have, I mean, obviously for, I think for a lot of us, all of us, the last, you know, six plus months have been really intense and I have had to have sort of this conversation with myself recently. That's like very aligned with what you just said that, okay, why am I engaging in these activities? If, if one of the activities is like binge reading stuff on Twitter, right? Let's say hypothetically, or, you know, watching, right. Or watching TV news or, you know, like if you, if I isolate the activity, like what's the purpose of this for me, right? Like, okay, well, I do want to be informed. Okay. Is this the best, is this like the best slash least triggering and most actually informative least like clickbaity way for me to do that? Or is it worth my time to go on a walk and listen to the democracy now podcast? And like, that's, right. I get the news and that, you know, without getting yeah. everyone's, you know, agenda along with it. Right. I mean, that's just one example, but I've had to kind of pull back of like, I can be more intentional and more choosy just because all this information is here. It doesn't mean that I have to consume it 24 seven. Like that's not actually helping anyone, especially because the end result is that then I'm too like emotionally like raw to do anything. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this sort of speaks to a larger topic that I know is something that you're interested in as well, this idea of sort of how to set boundaries. So I thought that might be mm-hmm. an interesting thing to to talk about because I know that that's, that's part of your work, right? Like helping people to figure that out. Yeah, it's, it is. It's, it's part of my work because it was one of the hardest things for me to learn. And it's, I certainly haven't mastered it. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I'm, 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 I was single for a long time. I was a single mom, just me and my daughter. And now I'm married and we have five kids. And so it's, it's funny because I, I was like, oh, I got pretty good at setting boundaries in this, this one particular set of circumstances. But, you know, learning to navigate like intimacy with a partner and running a household and a family together and keeping boundaries is like, oh, I'm like, well, okay, I just, this is like the next level. <laughs> 
I think, you know, boundaries are, are hard because they feel like non-love. They feel like the opposite of love, right? Like everything in our culture says that love is about togetherness. Love is about, you know, your eyes locking and love is about being snuggled up together. And love is, I don't know, it's like this intense like merge is what we think of as, as loving, both in like, especially in romantic relationships, but even with like, with your kids or with your, with your friends, or I think more and more, even with like your colleagues, if you love your work um, and you love your team, you'll be available 24 seven and you'll all hang out together and you'll stay late at the office. And then of course you'll have your phone on and you'll be doing texts and emails and whatever. So there's not really a, a model um, for what it might look like to be loving, but still have boundaries and space. So when we start to like try to set boundaries, most of the time we just feel like assholes. And then sometimes the people around us think that we're assholes too. And then it's really hard. Does that resonate at all? What I'm yeah, saying? absolutely. I've never <laughs> thought of, of this sort of obstacle to boundaries that way that this, that it looks like not love or non-love, like you said, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. So, I mean, what worked for you? One of the huge epiphanies that I had that really has shaped the way I think about this, and it's it's sort of the foundation that I teach in my programs on this kind of stuff, is that I realized that for me, I walked around in the world most of the time not feeling safe. I felt like on some level, I felt a little bit afraid all the time. Not like I would have said, oh, I feel afraid, but like if you could have measured my my heart rate or my, I don't know my biological signals, they would have registered a pretty high level of like fear, I think all the time. And the truth is, I think most of us walk around like this. You know, we have things that, that trigger us all the time. And what I realized was that I didn't really know how to feel safe in my own body. I didn't know how to sink into like a deep grounded sense that I was, I was in my body and I was okay and I could deeply relax. And some of this has to do with some trauma in my background, but a lot of it just has to do with the fact that lots of things in our worlds conspire to kind of keep us a little bit on edge. You know, even if nothing bad is happening, you've probably got text messages coming in and your computer is dinging and right. There's sort of this complete like ceaseless onslaught of, of input. And it can mean that a lot of us are sort of like we're revving at a pretty high level of anxiety all the time. And this really is related to boundaries, I promise. <laughs> what I learned was that when I could, I could settle down in my body enough to get really, to feel really safe in my body, then I got really clear signals from within myself of like, okay, this is a safe person. This is a safe situation. This is a good whatever. And then when so- suddenly when something was not good, it didn't feel good. It was like, it was really obvious. It was very clear. And that's how I learned how to set boundaries was like realizing that you could, I could tell a difference between like, Oh, this is a a person I'm happy to let come right up into my space versus no, you, you need to stay a little bit further away. But as long as I was living in such a state of constant anxiety, it was like the noise was so loud all the time. I couldn't actually tell when I needed to set a boundary and when I didn't. Mm, that, yeah. makes sense. that makes complete sense. So then that makes me want to ask, what was it that helped you sort of get out of that fear space and settle into your body more? I wish I could give you, you know, like 
a magic bullet or like three easy steps. Truthfully, it was almost a decade of, of deep inner work. It was therapy. It was listening to these wonderful guided meditations by someone named Bella Ruth Knapperstack. Um, It was everything I learned in my coach training about how to question my thoughts and realizing that a lot of the stuff that I thought in my head actually was totally not true. Um, And then it was just practicing, you know, it was, it was sitting in my body and trying to do it for like 10 minutes a day. And then if I couldn't do it for 10 minutes to do it for five, and if I couldn't do it for five to do it for two. So it was a process. It's something, you know, I think that might sound like bad news, but the good news is it's something you can learn. It's not just like there are peaceful people and not peaceful people because I went from being a a not peaceful person to a most of the time pretty chill person. Yeah, I don't think I'm not chill actually, that's not true. But I can I know how to find peace. That's a more accurate way to say it. Yeah, I I don't think that's that sounds like bad news at all. I think again that sounds like the truth, right? That it's 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 would be easy to be like, well just do these three things. And then someone's going to do those three surface level things and it's not going to work because of course it's not going to work because this is like the stuff we're talking about, like this is the stuff, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, you, so you mentioned uh, going from single mom with one kid to now having five kids. What's it like to blend families and get four new kids? Like, I mean, not literally overnight, but sort of. <laughs> Well, it's just, it's so easy. And, you know, if you just follow these three easy steps, it'll be a piece of cake. (laughs) No, it's so hard. And it's so messy. And it's so incredibly wonderful. Like, it's just, it's everything. It's all of it. It's fabulous. It's terrifying. It's gutting at times. It's heartbreaking at moments. And it's, there's so much sweetness to it, too. Tell me the story of how you met your husband. So we met, um, we met at an event that was thrown by a mutual friend. It was like a a conference sort of for, for entrepreneurs, but it was at this summer camp. Um, so we met and we were just really good friends. Um, and it's a long, complicated, also messy story because that's sort of how life tends to, tends to go. Um, but yeah, we, when we realized that we were in love, um, it meant some very drastic life changes for both of us, um, my husband was married at the time, which of course never makes things easy. Um, and I was living in Portland and was like, well, I can't move to Canada. And, and he was like, well, I, I can't move to Portland. And so we had to make some very big choices like right off the bat. So it was never like, well, are we going to date and see what happens? It was like, well, either nothing is going to happen or we're going to get married and, and blend our families. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is often sort of the case for people. Once you have kids in the mix, this stuff takes on a whole, a whole different dimension. Yeah. I'm curious the sort of conversations that you guys had with your kids about this, like about what was happening. Well, we wanted to do the very best we could by them, you know, while also recognizing that, no matter what, they were going to have really intense feelings about this. Um, and because there was so much change all at once, we, we sort of carefully, what, like we, we, we set things in motion one at a time, you know, so there were sort of phases. So this, this took, this whole process took over a year, um, from the time that we decided that we were going to be together and set things in motion to the time when I actually, my daughter and I actually moved up here, 
was it a year? I don't even, it was probably more than that, but it was at least a year. And so, you know, we took things in phases and we just tried to be really honest with them at whatever was, you know, age appropriate. And we tried to not shy away from the fact that like, that this is messy and that everyone is going to have feelings and that that's okay. Um, and we had a, a, we have a wonderful therapist who we work with. We talk to her every single week because, you know, that is what we feel like it takes to keep our complicated family life healthy. So we had a lot of guidance and a lot of help and we just, we just tried to take it slow, but also be as transparent as we could with them throughout the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't have kids, so I have no point of like personal reference with that, but I can imagine that it's, as you said, kind of like messy and a lot and everyone has feelings and it's beautiful and wonderful and hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, I was surprised that there weren't, I couldn't find a lot of great um, resources. You know, I'm a huge reader. Basically, I think you can find the answer to everything if you just read enough books. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Listen, I agree with you. I am, I am a part of that club as well. <laughs> And I was surprised that there just weren't, there weren't that, there, I don't know if I never found the right stuff or I, there just, it isn't out there, but it very much felt like we were kind of fumbling our way in the dark. What, so, what were you looking for that you couldn't find? Like, were there any particular questions that you were hoping to get answered? Yes. I wanted someone to give me three easy steps to finding <laughs> families without <laughs> turmoil. Right. No one's traumatized. There's no turmoil. There's no, right. Yeah. yeah. No one has messy feelings at all. Um, I, I wanted to know like, well, what's, what's the best way? Like what's, what's best practices to use a terrible, terrible term for, you know, telling your kids that their lives are going to change really radically. And that while we love them and respect them, they don't really have a lot of say over it. That's, Mm. that's tricky. That's a hard one. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I think that this desire, whether it's about this topic or, you know, any of the other wonderful things that we've been talking about to, want those best practices. It isn't necessarily a search for just give me the quick fix answer. I'm not willing to do the work. Like, I don't think it's always that. I think it's, it comes from a place of, you know, I, I love these people and I care about them and I don't want to hurt anyone. And like, if I can learn from someone else who's been here before, like, please tell me your wisdom, you know, to, to not, totally. you know, so I, th- I, th- I mean, I totally. think that desire comes yeah. from, comes from a loving place. And I mean, I'm in the business of like, like solving some seemingly insolvable problem in my own life and then turning it into a course. Like that's where all of my courses come from. That was, you know, Secret Mystics was about feeling too sensitive to live and not having any boundaries. My program, The Queen Sweep, was like being super right brain, creative, um, like chaos all the time and how I finally learned to like manage my life. That became a course. So I think I kept thinking like someone out there has like done the legwork they've, they've done the research and they have like figured it out and I will learn from their mistakes. And I just never quite found that resource that I was, I was looking for. Is there a mistake that, that you guys made that if you were to be in charge of creating that resource that you would want to teach people about? Hmm. Let me think. Or it doesn't have to be a mistake, but something like, what would you include if you like, you know, chapter one, you're creating this course or whatever. You're the one who's tasked with writing the thing that you couldn't find. Well, actually this was a good piece of advice that I did receive and I didn't find it in a book. It came, it came through a friend who had, had blended families a few years ago. Um, and she said, you know, 
everything in you is going to want to like make everyone be together. It's togetherness. We're a family now. We're going to have family time. And she said, you have to resist that urge and, and really work hard at keeping those individual lines of communication open with each kid because you've built up, you know, years of trust and there's no, like you can't just re- reproduce that. And so she said, it's going to feel really counterintuitive, but it's really important that like you keep taking time alone with, you know, my original daughter, our oldest, and that, you know, Nick keeps taking time one-on-one with his original kids. And that, that actually that that will help bring about more togetherness rather than the other way around. And that was great advice because that it, it was counterintuitive. It was sort of the opposite to what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But I mean, push everybody together. <laughs> but it makes sense, right? Because then like totally th- that, sense. that seems to be the scenario in which each kid would feel the safest, which then leads to right, exactly. like the ultimate togetherness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I always, uh, in addition to money, I love talking to people about their relationships. Cause I think this is another one of those things that like doesn't get talked about enough, right? Especially, especially with marriage, like, oh, you're just married and everything happens behind the scenes and nobody talks about anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. what, like, I guess to start, what is something that you feel like you have learned from your husband? (laughs) I've learned so much from him. He's pretty, pretty smart guy. Um, I have learned a lot about being brave from being with Nick. So when Nick and I met and became best friends, he was not Nick. He, she was Nikki. So my husband is transgender, was a living as a woman when we met. And through the time that we have been together, um, has been brave enough to first realize, you know, and tell the truth to himself and to me that he really, he, he needs to live his life as a man. It's the only way that he feels like he can, he can live in integrity. And it's taken immense courage for him to bring that realization out into the world. Um, and so he's transitioned. He is, he is Nick. Um, he's my husband. And watching him go through that has been amazing. It's been incredible. Yeah. I mean, you use the words bravery and courage. I feel like that's like a front row seat to an incredibly brave experience that you've had. Yeah. 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 You know, he, he's, he talks about this and I think it's really true. He says that the thing is everybody thinks that the moment that I came out, you know, on Facebook, that was the brave moment or the moment that I told our kids that that was the moment when I had to be really brave. And he's like, that was just like, that was like step number 64. It was steps number one, two, and three that were really brave. And, you know, they were way back when things that might not have seemed like a big deal to anyone else you know, really tiny personal decisions that maybe no one else would have even noticed. Like, you know what, I'm not going to wear that anymore because it it just, I feel gross when I wear it. Or, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to get this tattoo because it really means something to me. Um, Or, you know, just things that might not seem, I'm going to take this trip. I'm going to go on this trip because I just, that's what I need to do, even though, you know, the people in my life aren't very happy about it. It's, it's those decisions, I think, where we're really, we first start being brave. Mm -hmm. But people only see like what happens down the road. Yeah. I mean, it's like what we were, you were sharing about, uh, Andrea as well, Lucas's story, right? That it's like, it's not the 13th step or the 60th step or whatever. It's those first couple of things, which are seemingly small, maybe not as sexy, but it's those first things that like even tip you down the path of, you know, Mm -hmm. being able to get to that point where that the other people that see like what they consider to be the big, shiny, brave things. Yeah. 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 So the flip side of that, what would you say, and obviously, like, I know you can't speak for him, but what would you say that he's learned from you? 
Ah, uh, ooh. Hmm. <laughs> I think he would say that he has learned that it's okay to have feelings. We joke in our house that he's in charge of everything physical. He's in charge of keeping everyone alive. And I'm in charge of feelings. <laughs> sort of he's joke, in charge of keeping everyone alive. That's amazing. Totally true. It's completely true. He does all the cooking. He gets everyone out the door and to school in the mornings. He's way more on top of like laundry than I am. Um, but I handle all of the feelings. And <laughs> he says that his, I'm, he won't be mad if I say this because he says it all the time, but he says that the way he used to deal with feelings before he met me was, you just shut that shit down. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, that's not going to fly here. <laughs> like, listen, we're, we're in the magical mystical coaching space. We're going <laughs> to. Yeah. So many feelings. And he calls it feelings bullshit. He's like, oh my God, so much feelings bullshit. <laughs> Yo, you you get the partner that you need, right? Yeah, it's so true, right? So, I mean, and this is going to kind of be a big open-ended question, I guess, on purpose, and you can share whatever you feel like sharing, but what is it like, or what's your experience been being married to a transgender partner, man? Well, I don't have much to compare it to. I was married once before in my early, early 20s, but it was a total disaster, and I was deeply depressed and had no idea who I was. And now I'm a grown-ass woman. I'm 40. Um, But I haven't – I'm not very good at relationships. I haven't done a lot of relationships. I was very happily single for a long time. And so I feel like I don't even know that I can speak to what it's like to be married to a a trans man so much as I can talk about what it's like to – God, this kind of sounds so cheesy, but I'm going to say anyway, to like – to open up my heart and to trust somebody. Mm. You know? It's – it was scary. I, I liked being single. I was good at it. I knew I could trust myself. Um, it was really scary to like lose my autonomy in that way. And, you know, I think that, I think one of the things that we learned from each other is that the only way that things are going to work between us is a fairly radical form of honesty. And I don't necessarily know that it's like, good for everyone. I, I'm not a, you know, marriage counselor at all. Um, but for the two of us, we've, we've really like, we've learned that when we try to sugarcoat things for each other, or we hold back something because we're afraid of hurting the other's feelings, it usually ends up being much, much, much worse. So we try to be really honest with each other. And we, we have this wonderful therapist who we see, we talk about our relationship and we talk about our family and we feel like as with as much stuff as we're negotiating between blending families and being married and having so many kids and then also negotiating next transition, we felt like we really needed that support. We needed that like clean, safe space where we could have some of those scary, intense, raw conversations. And I think that if we had tried to do it on our own, I think we could have easily damaged each other and damaged our relationship. Yeah. I, if I could, you know, go back and give my younger self advice and whether I would listen or not, I guess is another, (laughs) another story. But, um, for me, I, I came to therapy as sort of a last resort, right? Like through Mm -hmm. kind of like a lot of the, I guess like stigma, right. Of it that I felt Mm -hmm. growing up and Mm -hmm. that what I love about what you just shared is it sounds like you guys set this up as like a proactive step. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. that it's really easy to think I, you know, I can't ask for help until I'm like, it's such rock bottom that I can't 
with myself anymore. I just can't mm-hmm. exist as a person in the world. And like a lot of that, especially with depression, like that was my experience. Like I didn't wind up getting help until, you know, it was, of course, of course it's not too late. Like the help helped for sure, but it's, I, I don't know. There's, that's just like a sort of like a beautiful thing that just stuck out for me and what you were sharing that like getting help and setting up the resources that you need to manage, you know, whatever it is that you're going through it, you can ask for that right up front. Yeah. And that was something that we talked about right at the beginning. And I was sort of like, look, babe, this is going to sound crazy, but this is kind of a non-negotiable for me. This is so up there for me. I have screwed up so many relationships and I, I'm, I don't feel like I have a lot of like good muscle built in this arena. I, I, I want to build this into our relationship where we just have a standing call, whether we need it or not. And he was sort of appalled at first, but, um, yeah. And the, the therapist we see, she uses a, well, not uses, I don't know. She's trained in a, a type of therapy called crucible therapy, which is a little bit different than any other kind of couples therapy I had done before. And I've done a bunch of different kinds of <laughs> various points in my life. And it's really intense. That's why it's called the crucible, because the idea is that you, you throw, you know, these two people and their issues into this very hot, like melting pot. And at the end, they will either be transformed into a new form or they will realize they cannot be together. And so it's intense, but it also is very like very fast. You move through things really fast and it really requires both people to be very clear about like what they want and what they're asking. Um, it's kind of scary, honestly, it's a little bit terrifying, but it's also hugely exhilarating and I think really, really empowering. And I've learned a lot you know, that, that I take back out into my work with my clients from, from having gone through this for a while now. I'd love to, is there anything specific that you want to share when you said that you, you take stuff out and then, you know, have used it with your clients? Is there anything in particular? Yeah, there's this, um, this concept of differentiation and there's a wonderful book called the passionate marriage by a guy named, uh, David Schnark. And where he, he's the guy who came up with this whole mode of, of therapy. But the idea of being differentiated is that you know how to be your own person, even when you're in intimate relationship with someone else. And so when we talked earlier about how there's this idea that like love is all about merging together, he says, no, no, that's not love at all. Um, true love is when two people can stay very distinctly themselves. They can stay differentiated and that that separateness is what allows for intimacy. That if you've got two people who sort of collapse into each other, you're no longer intimate. You're just like this blob. But when you have two people who stay very distinctly themselves, they have the capacity to be intensely intimate with each other. Mm, yeah. And I, I love that too, because that, I mean, I think that goes against so much of what our larger sort of cultural stereotype is, especially about romantic love, right? That it's this like totally all encompassing and we're, you know, like Disney princess style, we meld into each other or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, that it's, you know, just another and example. each other's minds and can't, right. Yeah. Can't exist two breaths without each other. And yeah. like, if we hold that up as the fantasy, you know, which for real, I have done like countless times and I have also had a lot of failed relationships, you know? So it's, it's interesting. I, I remember, um, uh, someone said once when I, I was going through a particularly, you know, tough breakup and I felt like I had been making the same mistakes a lot, right? Like the same, like there was definitely, you know, you're the common denominator in all of your relationships, right? So <laughs> for, for better or worse. And, you know, they said, this friend said something about how like, it's the, 
the person who like breaks your pattern or the person like for whom you're willing to break your pattern, like something has to change, right? Like something <gasps> has to take a left Ooh, turn somewhere. And so good. Right. And that was, you know, like if you have to be either be willing to do something differently or, you know, that this is kind of going against this idea of like that if you have a type, right, you always go for the same type or, okay, well, obviously that's not working. Right? Like something's not working. And, you know, I think a lot of that for me was caught up in the opposite of what you just described from, you know, the differentiation that it's like you looking for this fantasy thing that was actually very destructive mm-hmm. yeah so mm-hmm. I hear you I hear you um so before we start to wrap up is there anything uh, either about your work or your life that hasn't come up in the conversation that is on your mind that you wanted to talk about oh gosh you know it's funny because as we've been talking um we've talked a lot about boundaries and we talked a lot about my private clients but we haven't really talked about this course I teach, which is actually a lot of what I do. And it's called the queen sweep. And I was thinking about it because it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where you, you have to have that woo woo kind of spiritual, that energetic piece lined up. But then it's also a lot about what do you actually do in the physical world? And I discovered kind of by accident that if I got women to start like cleaning up their physical lives, like making their beds and clearing off their counters and, you know, clearing out their money and, um, like just getting like to-do lists in place and getting a handle on that kind of super non-sexy nuts and bolts physical side. To my surprise, I discovered that it unleashed all these other amazing transformations in their worlds. Like it was almost like as they made their physical spaces like more clear and beautiful and spacious, they got more clear and beautiful and spacious inside. Mm. Um, Yeah. So I really, I love that program. We haven't really talked about it here, but I was thinking about it because I think it's that thing where like, it works both ways. You know, you have to, you have to work on your inner stuff. You don't have to work on it, but if you clear up your inner stuff, it makes you more able to take like clear, powerful action out in the world. But sometimes even if you feel like you're a mess and nothing is working, just a simple physical act, like clearing off the top of your desk or putting flowers on a table is enough to shift you energetically to where you feel better. And then like, it's like you can kind of create this virtuous cycle almost. Yeah. And well, I think a lot of that kind of stuff in my experience, getting a handle on, on those things has been sort of the surprising power of small wins. Like, yeah, just open the mail. Like it, that just, instead of letting the mail just like stay, right? Like that sound made sound like a, mm. like a very small thing, but like, no, the, totally that there's just like, oh, okay, like, I, I'm a person who can like handle this. I can go through this. I can pay these bills. I can do the right. That it's like, it's those kind of small things that they're, I find that it helps me to tackle the larger things, whether that's creative stuff or just like some of the bigger life stuff we've been talking about. If it's like, okay, well I have a budget, like that's right. Like there's groceries in the yeah. fridge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll definitely put a link to that program too. Cause that sounds interesting. So the way that we love to end these episodes are with what we call community questions. So there are nine sort of random questions that the listeners want me to ask all of our eight guests this season. So if you are down for okay. nine sort of random, easy slash sure. not easy questions, I don't know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right. I'll do my best. <laughs> what is your current guilty pleasure? <laughs> the show Nashville. Oh my God. I love it. I haven't seen it. But I've heard such good things and I'm like so hesitant because I'm such a binge watcher that I'm like, oh my God, do I really want to like go into a show yeah, that has right. like so many seasons that I'm like never going to come yeah, up again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll add that. I'll add that. I just finished uh, catching up on slash binging Jane the Virgin. Have you seen that? 
No, I haven't seen oh that. Oh my god! Oh my god! It's the it's, it's, it's everything. It's everything. My husband. It's everything. It's okay, everything. My husband next. and I have very little like in the overlapping Venn diagram of our sort of mm-hmm. interests in that kind of stuff. It's like basically like. The West Wing, um, which, in my opinion, is the greatest show of all time. Oh, mine too. The very best. Oh, the very time. best. And The Great British Bake Off. And now Jane the Virgin. Like, these are surprisingly the three things that we watch together. So, yeah, it's really good. Um, what's, one, what's one change that you have made in your life? It could be something big, small, a habit, a lifestyle change, anything that was really tough at the time, but totally worth it in the end. Ooh, I started budgeting. I use a program called YNAB, which stands for You Need a Budget. I use it as well. You do? Oh my God. YNAB totally transformed my relationship to my money completely. And it was so hard for me at first because I am not like a, I'm very right brain. I don't like details. I don't really like numbers. Love YNAB. Can't stop talking about it. I'm obsessed with money stuff. Like I've always been super into like budgeting and doing like I that was one of the things my husband and I got married and he's not into that at all. And I was like, can I please be in charge of all the things with all our money and we can talk about That's it, but can I, I do it? Too. Yeah. I was like, I was like, we have to consult on all decisions, but listen, if we're going to be married, we have to use YNAB. And he yeah. was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and I'm actually working on a course specifically for entrepreneurs around money because I love money and I've read like a bazillion books about it, but they all just assume that everybody has like a steady paycheck. That's like the foundational assumption of every personal finance book I've ever found. And I'm just like, okay, hello. What about the rest of us? Okay. Well, (laughs) I will definitely be circling back with you on that because I am interested to hear what you create. That sounds amazing. Um, what helps you to stick with a long-term project or goal? Um, this is the hardest thing for me. Um, like social accountability. So like if I tell my list that I'm going to launch such and such a course on this day, three months from now, then I'll do it. Yeah. I'm the same. I need something else too. (laughs) Um, what's one thing that you're not doing right now because you're afraid? (gasps) Ooh, I am not writing a novel. Okay. Do you have a specific idea in mind or just that, you know, you want to write a novel in general? I have like half an idea and then like six satellite ideas that don't actually fit with that idea. (laughs) Well, I think you should definitely write a novel. I would, I would love to read your novel. So (laughs) social accountability, right? That's what you need. (laughs) Right. God. (laughs) What's one thing that a lot of people seem to do that you don't do or that you're just not into? Uh, Reality TV. I don't get it at all. Like reality TV of any kind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't understand the appeal. I love TV. I will watch it till my brains rot out of my ears, but I just don't really understand reality TV. Especially since it's like not actually reality, right? Like it's so, we know that it's so put together. (laughs) What advice would you give yourself five years ago? So you in 2012. Years of 2012. Let's see. 2012. I had just... I just moved back to the States after the earthquake. Oh, so I was in that like super fledgling, terrifying part of starting my business. My advice to myself five years ago would be, oh, just just stick with it. It's going to be fine. When you look ahead at the next few months, what do you feel most excited about? I feel excited about, this is so nerdy, uh, we are going to paint our living room in the next few months, it's this really horrible yellowy beige color and we're going to paint it a cool gray. And that makes me so excited. 
<laughs> I love it. Um, so the next question as a fellow book lover, I know is a tough one, but uh, which couple of books, any type of any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or maybe that you reread or recommend most often? This is so hard. Can I give 20 instead? I know, right? It's, it's equally hard for me. I have, like a, I have like a whole bookshelf page on my site. Like I'm an obsessive reader. So just it, anything All that right. comes to mind. So I mentioned Expecting Adam by Martha Beck. Yeah. Still one of my all-time favorites. Um, I loved The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert. I loved that. It's like one of the Ugh. most beautiful books I've ever read. So beautiful. It should have won a National Book Award or something. It was amazing. And then one that I have to say is Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed. Well, so you and I are the same because I also love that book. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just the very best. Every time I read it, I'm like, I just should shut down my coaching business because Cheryl as sugar has the answers to all of life's questions. So I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, that's um, what I refer to as a fire book or a burn book where I'm reading it and it's so good and I wish that I had written it and I'm so jealous that I want to set it on fire and like throw it out the window. <laughs> So, yes. Yeah. I, I remember the first time that I was reading it and I was just like, I just couldn't, I was like, wanted to read it, couldn't put it down, but like couldn't read it because it was so true and so good that I was so jealous. <laughs> oh man. So the last question, if you could leave our community to listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Mm. I think if we all ask ourselves at the end of every day, what is the most important thing that I want to get done tomorrow? We would all move ourselves forward a lot, a lot more efficiently and happily. Yeah, that's good. I love that. What's the best place for people to find you and your work and, you know, connect? Do you have maybe like a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah, the best way to find me is to go to my website, which is declaredominion.com. Um, if you're interested in the Right Side of History interview series, it's declaredominion.com slash history. If you're interested in boundaries, I have a free resource um, at declaredominion.com slash boundaries. And if you're interested in the clearing out your clutter and making life beautiful in really painless ways, you could go to queensweep.com. I have another free free thing there. So. And also find me on Instagram. I love Instagram. I love Instagram too. All right. So I will put links to all of this in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a good conversation. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Erin. Hi, Erin. Hello. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions. Are you ready to tell me all the things about you? Uh, sure. Okay. What is your current guilty pleasure? Uh, the West Wing. Ooh, wait. Okay, sorry. <laughs> this has derailed all the other questions. This is my all-time favorite show. Are you watching it for the first time? Um, no, I had watched it previously, but, uh, kind of like spotty when it was first on. And then a couple of seasons, a couple years ago, I started watching it from the beginning and I think I only got through a couple episodes. So then rewatching the whole thing from the beginning again, and I'm on season five oh my God. Um, it's so good. right now. So it's totally. And then I have been listening to the West wing weekly and oh my God. Ah! 
it's okay. The, yeah, the West Wing Weekly podcast. Um, basically, for anyone out there who's a West Wing fan, I mean, get on it, get on it, get on it. But yeah, that's it's the podcast that I will always listen to like, the second that it comes out. And it's like it's almost like the experience of binge watching, but even better because the I mean, the guests they have on the podcast are, you know, like, as you know, the cast members and the crew. And it's just it's so interesting. Yes, it totally is. I love how they de- deconstruct the episodes. And so I binged, listened to the first like 23 of them. And then I was like, I don't know what to do with my life. I can't possibly wait like six days for the next episode. Um, so yeah, clearly it's my guilty pleasure right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I couldn't say enough good things about that show. It's funny listening to the West Wing Weekly now, sort of like rewatching it in my mind, you know, with the current political climate situation. Like sometimes I can't, I sometimes I can't like it makes me too emotional where I'm just like this is so idealistic seeming and yet I wish that it wasn't yeah I know there's been a lot of tears so good okay well yes that is a perpetual guilty pleasure for me um what's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast oh favorite thing to eat for breakfast um really good scrambled eggs and with really good toast what is really good toast to you um, like from the artisan local bakery, usually sourdough with like a really awesome crust to it. Mm, that sounds so good. Our friends who live across the street, um, one of the, he's an incredible bread baker, like definitely could have that bakery that you just described, but it's just kind of this like passion project side hobbies obsessed with bread. And so we'll get these random texts at like 8 PM, you know, hot bread delivery question mark. We're like, we're never, ever going to say no to that. Literally you have a key to the house, come over anytime, like put bread wherever you want it. Oh man. It's pretty good. Oh my God. I'm so jealous. I'd love free bread delivery at all hours. Yeah, it's the best. I'm really spoiled. We were at, um, husband and I were at Trader Joe's a couple weeks ago and they have, um, in their spice section, this new thing. It's a little bottle. Uh, it's called, I think everything but the bagel. It's basically the seasonings that go on an everything bagel, right? Like the toppings. So I'm so passive aggressive. I buy this. I go over to our friend's house. I'm like, Hey, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying, cause he makes really good bagels. I'm like, nudge, nudge, here you go. I bought this for you. Like two days later, there's everything bagels. I'm like, this is the best. That's awesome. <laughs> so funny. Um, okay. If you had an extra $100 and you had to spend it on something fun that's just for you, how would you spend it? Oh, travel. Travel where? Travel what kind? I don't know. Travel someplace I haven't been before. And, you know, it's $100 and I need to stay kind of local. That's okay. Because um, there's lots of places around me that I haven't spent enough time exploring. But, um yeah. When I'm not working, I'm traveling. So definitely that. Yeah. I love it. What's local for you? Where are you? Uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh, okay. I was there once, but only for a couple of days. My husband raced the uh, age group national championships for triathlon. were there a couple of years ago. <laughs> yep. I, re- I remember that. That's yeah. yeah I was there. Um, who would you say is one of your favorite people to follow on social media? Uh, besides you? Oh. Um, <laughs> um, oh man, that's really tough. Um, I follow a lot of the Wazell team because they're always super awesome to follow and inspirational. Um, they're basically I, the best at social media. Anytime like anyone's thinking are. about a, yeah, a brand or whatever, I'm like, just look at Wazell. They just have nailed social media completely. Yep. And I mean, you just got to love Lauren, um, Lauren Flashman and just, she's amazing. So it's, it's she, I always come across like a tweet of hers at like the perfect time when I just need like a little inspiration or a little nudge or something. Yeah. She's, um, she's the best. Uh, she lives here in she, Bend. Yeah. She's awesome. Yeah. 
And the last question, what's one of your favorite books or a book that has had a big impact on you that you think I should read? Um, oh my God. One of my favorites is my life in France by Julia Child. Oh, yes, of course. Right. I love it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, such a good suggestion. Um, you know, it's funny. I feel like that's the first book that someone said in a while as a recommendation that I actually have read. So you just did not make my <laughs> reading list longer. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's one that's just like always on the top of my list. Um, and Oh, it's just such a great story. And it's always just such a good reminder that just because of where you are in life right now is not where you need to, where you're going to end up. Um, I mean, she didn't discover food and cooking until she was 36. So it's one of those like, you're never too old to learn something new. Yeah. I mean, and I forget how old she was when she got her TV show, but it was quite a bit older than that, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Agreed. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you've made a small and powerful pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share first why you decided to support the show and what you love about being in our little community. It was kind of a no-brainer. When you started um, talking about um, having the podcast be community-supported, uh, I think it was pretty uh, pretty quickly after that that I pledged my support. And it was a no-brainer because at the time, and this is before you ever talked about the time that it takes to put all of this together, I could just imagine the time it took to schedule interviews and do that and do all of the, all of the things um, surrounding the podcast – Um, that's a, that's a chunk of time that that's a commitment. So it was one of those things where it was a no brainer. I'm enjoying it. I enjoy every episode and what you were bringing to the podcast world. And so, um, it was just, it was absolutely a no brainer that you needed, you needed my support. Oh, well, thanks so much. You're welcome. And since you have joined, yeah, in joining early on, there's been a bunch of bonus content and other things that we've done. Have you had kind of a favorite thing? Um, I am so happy that you're back writing uh, your weekly emails, and I'm really excited that they just go to the squad pod. Um, and I just, I love having those messages hit my inbox every week. Thanks. Yeah, you, it's funny. I, <laughs> the weekly emails, it's like, I can't stop writing about my life if I try. <laughs> like, I, I like really, I blogged for eight years and then I stopped and deleted the whole thing. And then I did weekly emails and then I stopped doing that. And then this, it just, it feels like the right group of people, you know, cause it's definitely a vulnerable thing to share things about kind of your real life in real time while you're going through them. I think there's a lot of power in it. Obviously it's like the whole underlying message of what I do, but it is putting yourself out there in a way that's can be kind of fragile and And there's something that's really nice about like an earned level of intimacy. Anyone who's in this community, right, even though it's, you know, whatever, three or 400 people at this point, it's still people that, you know, I know that we're all like, it's our people, right? It's our group. So it's, it feels good. So I'm glad that you enjoy the emails because I enjoy writing them. Yay. And I'm so glad that you were brave and joined me for this. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 30 hours of bonus content with new stuff added every month, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 